Hey friend, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary, and here we are another week, another episode of our Bible study series we're calling the Bible for Grown-Ups. We're going to be starting a brand new series tonight where we're going to look at the Hebrew prophet Elijah, and then in a few weeks we're going to continue on uh, just one long thing. We're going to look at his protege, a prophet by the name of Elisha. These two go kind of hand in hand not only chronologically, but thematically in the Bible. So, tonight we're going to kick things off by giving a little background information about where we are, who we are, when we are, and I hope that you'll enjoy it. And I'll see you on the other side. I think it's so interesting whenever we find ourselves in those places where it seems like God has compelled us to lean into God's provision, to trust God. I think so often we, as at least as Christian believers, sometimes we get so hung up on this idea that once, once we become Christians, that our lives will be lives of abundance, that there'll always be more than we could ever need That's simply not the case. While we do have life in abundance, the abundance of things, food, material possessions, those things are never promised to us. In fact, often those things can be removed from our lives for a purpose so that God can teach us something very, very important. That we have to, at some point in our faith journey, decide that we're going to depend wholly on God. And that means being comfortable with knowing that God's never going to forsake us and will always provide us with just what we need. Maybe not what we want, maybe not more than we could handle, but definitely just what we need, our daily bread something to think about. Until next week, uh, friend, I hope that you're blessed and I'll see you then. I'm going to go ahead and get started. I hope you guys don't mind. Uh, Tonight we're starting a new series. Um, We're actually going to, we're going to do probably six Parts. It's actually going to be over two different people. Uh, we're probably going to do three and three. Three over the prophet Elijah from Hebrew Scripture. Three over his uh, successor Elisha after. Uh, I think those are fun to do together. One, because they go together as a story. They chronologically go together. And two, I think sometimes uh, people, uh, when we don't pay close attention to the details, but we really want to try to kind of think about who did what in the Bible? Sometimes we get Elijah and Elisha mixed up. So we're going to kind of go through these probably six parts um, and just highlight the big stories of these guys. Same like we have done with other books. We could dive into eight, nine, ten parts on these characters and really pick them apart. But I just kind of feel like when we get down in that granular detail, sometimes I think stuff just gets lost in the details. So uh, we're going to hit the high points, uh, talk about a little bit about history. Uh, this is not a history class, 
But I do want to begin uh, by setting the scene for where we are, okay? We're in the uh, 9th century B.C. That's the 9th century, so it'd be 800s, okay? And so for reference, Jesus is at zero here, right? 1,000 B.C. is King David. What we're talking about here is 200 years after King David with a king by the name of Ahab. These are going to be, this is going to be the time period that's going to begin. And we're going to look at the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Uh, again, I don't, this is tonight, we're not getting into how uh, the unified kingdom of Israel under David, Saul, David, and Solomon. Uh, we're not going to get into how those uh, end up getting split into two different kingdoms, but we're just going to suffice to say that at this point in time, there are two kingdoms of the people of God. There's the kingdom of Judah, which includes the city of Jerusalem. And there's an area, the area to the north is known as the uh, kingdom of Israel. Okay, and it's in the kingdom of Israel that we're going to find in these uh, 200 years, a succession of 19 bad kings. 19 bad kings in a row leads us to the 9th century BC where we find Elijah and the state of the, of the nation of Israel as we're going to find what it's in. We're going to talk more about those kings here in a second. Okay, uh, Tonight also, I know this is really tough. I'll switch sides. I'll get a bigger, better map. Uh, but if you could just see, again, here is uh, Jerusalem down here. Where my pen is. Up here is Tishbe. It's going to be where Elijah's going to come from. And tonight, primarily, we're going to talk about events that take place right here in a place called the Ravine of Kareth, or the Kareth Ravine, right here. Okay? So it's kind of situating us geographically and uh, chronologically. Again, according to the Bible, 9th century BC, the kingdom of Israel once united under Solomon, divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Again, like I had mentioned, the southern kingdom of Judah would uh, retain Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, Omri, at the time, the king of Israel, continued policies of his kingdom, his kingship, uh, from the reign of Jeroboam, which was contrary to religious law. Okay, So when these kings start firing off in a row, We've got this guy named Omni, and Omni, well, we got Jeroboam, and we got a guy named Omni who's going to follow Jeroboam, but he's following a guy that already had begun to part uh, from religious law as it came to running the kingdom, okay? So things go off the rails with these successive kings right off the bat. Right off the bat, things go off the rails, okay? And, uh, and one of the things was to what they were trying to do was to pull religious uh, importance off the city of Jerusalem, right? Because the city of, or the nation of Israel didn't control the holy city of Jerusalem. What that ends up happening is it causes the people in the northern kingdoms to begin to build uh, local temple altars for their sacrifices. They were also appointing priests from outside the family of Levites. Bad news. Uh, and most importantly of all the bad news, this is we're going to talk about this over and over and over again. You'll probably get sick and tired of hearing it. Um, they began allowing 
and encouraging the building of temples that were dedicated to Baal. Okay, Baal and Asherah are the Canaanite gods that stand in opposition to Jehovah. Okay, these are people that live next door to each other figuratively, right? They look the same. They have the same kind of jobs. They live in relatively the same area, but there's a big difference between a Canaanite and an Israelite. And the big, big difference is what God you worship and what you expect your God to do for you, right? And as these kings are successively taking bad turns at bat, with each and every successive turn, it seems like the kingdom of Israel is moving further away from the people of God and into the temple of Baal and Asherah. Okay? Uh, now this king Omri uh, achieved domestic security. He had a marriage alliance between his son Ahab, this guy we're going to talk, King Ahab, the guy we're going to talk about tonight. And he marries a woman from up here in Sidon, okay? Uh, This is in Phoenicia. Sidon's up here. And uh, you may know her name, Jezebel, right? That's a, we say Jezebel, but that's Jez-a-bel, right? And it's, uh, it it actually stands, uh, it's a a proclamation. Her name means, uh, where is my prince? Speaking, referring to Baal. And uh, that phrase, where is my prince, is uh, central to uh, worship within the Canaanite religion. I'm not an expert in Canaanite religion. I'm just trying to tell you that's where we get that name. So whenever you run across names in the Bible that have Bel or Baal in them, more than likely, well, first of all, if they have Baal in them, then they're going to be worshippers. They're Canaanites. Two, if they have Bel in them, they probably have been transliterated by... Uh, Jewish writers to um, to de-emphasize the emphasis of Baal on their name. I think next week I'll present some more examples of that and how this all worked together because it's just not like um, America is America because of its geogra- ge- geography and Canada is Canada because of its geography um, and 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 our worshiping and our way of thinking and our way of living is completely different and it all. Uh, changes once you cross that border. It's, it just doesn't work that way in the Middle East during this time, right? There, there's a lot of fluidity between religious practices of people that lived in relatively very close proximity to each other. Our story tonight is also going to come to us from Hebrew Scripture, 1 Kings and 17, if you'd like to, uh, to look that up. Now, whenever uh, Ahab takes control over from Omri, uh, things get worse. Because Ahab, the king of Israel, actually builds a temple for Baal. Jezebel uh, would bring, will end up bringing a large uh, entourage of priests and prophets of Baal and Asherah into the country. And this is the context in which chapter 17 of 1 Kings opens up. Okay, So beginning at verse 1, and we're not going to read hunks of scripture tonight. Again, I think I'm going to try to pull... Back off the granular detail on these series, and just kind of let's get an idea of who these people are and what's going on in the world. I think that's just better than 
This is complicated. I, it's complicated for me. It may not be for you. It's complicated stuff for me to really get my head around. And so I think it's better to really, rather than just deep, deep dive into three or four pages of you just hearing me read scripture after scripture, probably involving names that I'm not pronouncing anyway, but you wouldn't know whether I'm mispronouncing them or not. Right? I think it's better to kind of, let's look at themes that we're going to see uh, with the prophet of God here and in this bad place. Uh, the kingdom of Israel at the time. And I I think that you'll see correlations between uh, what our individual lives might be like today in the modern world, a world in which we might look around and go, hey, things are going, this is not necessarily the godliest place we could be living, okay? If that's how you so uh, believe. 1 Kings 17 and 1 describes Elijah as a Tishbite. Again, here's Tishbi here. He warns that Ahab, uh, he warns King Ahab that there will be years of catastrophic doubt so severe that not even dew will form. Why? Because Ahab and his queen stand at the end of this long line of kings of Israel who have been said to have done evil in the sight of the Lord. So opening up to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, again, I think it's a three, three-part series here on Elijah. One of the greatest men, uh, humans, recorded in all of Holy Scripture. Again, a little bit more context to the time period that we're studying. Uh, the Northern Kingdom, 19 evil kings. This is about a 200-year period, right? So imagine not just 19 ineffective leaders, but 19 in a row. This was a time when Elijah lived. In fact, there was a very evil king that we just mentioned by the name of Ahab, married to a very wicked queen named Jezebel. And some people would argue that she's the most wicked woman that have ever lived. That's up for traditional debate. And under their reign, the Bible says that Ahab did more evil in the eyes of God than any of those before him. So number 19 is is the worst of all of them. Now, during these times of idolatry that I'm trying to describe here, when these evil kings would turn people's hearts away from the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They'd turn them towards false gods like Baal and Asherah. People would often sacrifice their children to these gods. Okay? Scripture says under Ahab, uh, he was more evil than anyone before him. So this is a very, 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 very dark, dark time of corruption. Major scandals. Unprecedented idol worship. And we find God finally saying, enough is enough. Interestingly, though, God doesn't raise up an army, right, to come and decimate everybody. God doesn't doesn't bring some mighty, catastrophic uh, uh, earthquake or flood, anything like that, right? He doesn't bring anything like that. God simply raises up one person to take a stand. One person, this man Elijah. And I'd argue in our world today, God may want to do something very similar right here where we live. God may raise up one teenage girl to take a stand in her class against or or for sexual purity. God may raise up a young business leader to take a stand for integrity in business that's lacking integrity. God may raise up one person to go into politics to finally stand up for what's honest and true. God often raises up one person, one person to make a difference. So today, 
Again, we're building a foundational understanding of who Elijah is, and so I'd like to call this talk the making of a person for God. Making of a person for God. Or, right, it's not just a man, a woman for God. This is not just a man of God. This is man, woman. This is a person of God. So I've been talking a lot about uh, etymology and names and stuff. Let me tell you real quickly. This is kind of neat, I think. Elijah, the name Elijah, is separated into two parts, the E-L-I part and the J-A-H part. The L stands for Elohim or God, right? The I is the personal uh, pronoun for my or mine. And Jah means Jehovah, right? So translated, the name can mean the Lord is Jehovah, my God is Jehovah, or I think probably uh, the one that's um, probably the best translation, the Lord is my God. The dude's name is literally, the Lord is my God. And so immediately when God raises up this prophet to stand down this evil king Ahab, by his very name alone, he is making a testimony that says the Lord God is the one true God. My God, Jehovah. And he stands down the king who turns, uh, who have, who's turned so many against the one true God. So let's look at the story tonight. John chapter 17. The very beginning of the story, a story we have hardly little background about who Elijah is, where Elijah has come from. We just know, verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. He's identified where he's from. That's going to change soon. I want to make a point about that here in a second. He comes to the king, King Ahab. And he says, King Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. Right? You can see he's going straight for these false gods that Ahab's gotten involved with. The Lord who lives, whom I serve, according to that God, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. Hey, listen, if you've made it this far, first of all, thanks for making it this far. I hope that you're enjoying it. I hope you'll enjoy this second half. But I'd just like to take one second. Just to ask if you could do me a favor, if you are enjoying the semi-seminarian, if you like what we're doing here, if you could, if you could like us, whatever platform, if you're on Spotify or Apple or Stitcher or whatever your platform is, if you could like us and follow us. And if you have the opportunity to maybe give us a review, like on Apple Podcasts, we would certainly really appreciate it. That really helps get the Bible study message out to better to more people because of the algorithm stuff I don't really understand it all but I've been told it helps so if you could help me I would certainly appreciate it listen I'm not going to take up any more of your time we're going to go right back to our story now if this is a movie right he's staring down the king his name is the Lord my God is my God in the movie this is the bump 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 part Right? This is the tension part between the two. Right? Because he's making this very, very strategic, powerful, prophetic judgment against the land. It's actually just about as horrible of a pro- proclamation as you could make. 
for the next few months and years, no rain, not even dew. Now, why is that so bad? Okay, let me put this into context. We have a lot of people talking today about global shutdown, gas prices, and inflation, and all that business, right? This would have been a total economic shutdown. In this agriculturally driven society, in this agriculturally dominant economy, no rain would shut everything down. In our world, it means you can't even get gas at gas stations. Banks are not only lending money, you're not going to be able to get your money out. You're not going to have electricity in your home. Life as you know it with your modern conveniences has just ended. People starving to death. Unemployment, 50, 60, 70 percent. People are going to be dying all over the place. So this man stares down this evil king and he says, no more rain. Takes tremendous faith. Make a proclamation like that. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, here we go. The battle between these two sides is on. Right? Let's see him fight. But instead, God does something a little bit different. Instead of pushing headlong into a confrontation with Ahab right off the bat, God goes and takes Elijah away. So that he can do more in him. Why? Because there's so much more that God needs to do through him. And we're going to watch as God shapes this man in, in a very deep season of preparation. Almost as if God is saying to him, there's so much more I need to do in you because there's so much more I need to do through you. And many of us might identify with that preparatory work that God is taking on Elijah. Three seasons of preparation that we're going to identify in this story. The first one, the first season that uh, God takes him through is a season of isolated pain. An isolated pain where he is alone. He's got no one else to call out to. He's hurting privately. In a season of hiding. Verse 2 and 3, we pick this up. Verse 1, he says, no more rain. Verse 2, then, immediately after, the Bible says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. Now this word in Hebrew, Kareth, it means to cut off. It also means to cut down. It means to be cut off from the source, uh, cut off from blessings. Actually, very literally, the word careth means to be cut down like you chop a tree. And you can almost sense what God is saying here. It's as if God is going to say, I'm going to take you through a season of breaking. I'm going to cut you down. I'm going to humble you. And I'm going to teach you to be totally dependent on me. I'm going to humble you privately before I use you publicly. I'm going to do something in you that's very, very deep. So later on, you're going to be able to do more than you ever thought possible. 
I want to cut you down privately so I can use you publicly. A lot of times people are in their own Kareth Ravine and they're in their own season of pain and they're asking themselves, where is God? Where is God? And the reality is often is God is right there doing a very deep work inside of you. And you might be saying, hey, I'm living in a Kareth Ravine. I'm there. I'm broken. I feel like I'm being cut down. Those things I used to depend on, I can no longer depend on those things. I am in a Kareth Ravine. And God may also be saying to you, no, you've got to understand, I'm doing something in you. There's a preparatory work going on. I'm teaching you something that you couldn't learn any other way. I'm doing this work in you so I can do more through you. You're there, and you could be there on purpose. You're in the Kareth Ravine. You're in that period, right? Elijah was here for months. Months all alone. With nobody to talk to. No one understood the Kareth Ravine where God was breaking him. The famous theologian A.W. Tozier, he says this. He says, it's doubtful that God can bless a person greatly until he's hurt them deeply. It's doubtful that God can bless a person greatly unless God has hurt them deeply. So those of you, if you might feel like you're in a Kareth ravine, be encouraged. The more that God breaks you, the more God is preparing you. The isolated pain, number one, the season of the Kareth Ravine. The second thing I'd like for us to look at tonight is we see God take Elijah through this shaping period, molding him into this person, this man of God with power. He takes him through also a season of total dependence. Total and complete dependence. Where Elijah could not depend on anything at all but God and God alone. Verses 4, 5, and 6 says this. God says, Elijah, you'll drink from the book that I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So here we see Elijah all by himself, and God does this miracle. In the middle of a drought, there's no water at all, this brook springs up. In the middle of the drought, no rain, there's, there's these birds to go out and find bread and meat every morning and every evening. It's like God's heavenly catering service. They deliver straight to the prophet. What's God doing? God's very clearly, very distinctly here saying, no matter what and for always, I will be faithful and you can count on me to provide for you. And many of us could be in a season where there was something that we used to trust for in our security and then it's taken away. And then we don't have anything else to trust in except for the giver of life and the giver of all good things. 
And we have to learn that everything else that we used to rely on eventually fades away. But God will always and always be faithful to us. A single mom knew this well. She'd pray every day very loudly in her apartment. She would pray to God and worship God for God's provision. And she lived next door to an atheist who hated hearing her prayers through their paper-thin walls. And she would worship God and the atheist would come over and say, Lady, you are a fool. There's no God. And then one week, as oft is the case, there was more month than money. And she's crying out to God, God, you've always provided for me. You've always been faithful. I know you'll come through again. God, please provide food for my children. And the atheist had had enough. So he immediately went to the grocery store, bought several bags of food, brought it back over to the woman's uh, apartment, put it right in front of her door, knocked on the door, ran and hid. She came out, she saw the food. Oh, God in heaven, you're so good. Thank you so much. And he jumps out of the bushes and he says, there is no God. God didn't do that. I did it. Just to prove to you that there's no God. And she worshiped, all the, worshiped God all the more, saying, thank you, thank you, God. You are providing for my needs and you made the devil pay the bills. <laughs> forever and ever, forever and ever, God says, I'll be your provider. When you can't depend on what you used to be able to depend on, I will deliver you what you need. Here's the cool thing about it. I think, I just love this. God doesn't give him two days, two weeks, two months worth of food, does he? God doesn't give him a three-month supply. God gave him enough for today. Just enough for today. And some of us, we need to learn that. We're in a season and we're hurting and we're alone and we're afraid. But guess what? God will deliver you just enough for the day. You're uncomfortable? Yes. You're afraid? Yes. But God says, I will be your comfort today. You don't have much, but God says, I will be your provision for today. You feel very weak, but God says, I'll be your strength today. Your friends, they leave you, but God says, I'll be your friend today. I may not bring you more than you need, but I will always bring you exactly what you need. I will be your daily bread. And Elijah learns to depend on God for just that day. So God's teaching him. God's breaking him. He's cutting him. He's humbling him. He's teaching him total dependence. When he, when he Elijah, he has no ability, none to provide for himself. God is teaching him, I'll be your Provider, a season of total dependence. Okay, the third uh, season that I'd like for us to see is uh, a season of unconditional obedience. 
There's isolated pain. There's total dependence. Unconditional obedience. Verses 7, 8, and 9, the story starts to break down. What's God doing? Uh, He told me to go do this. And now he's going to find it's all changing. What's going on, God? Verse 7, the Bible says, Sometime later, the brook dried up. Because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Go at once to Zarephath and Sidon and stay there. Okay, here, there. Now let's put ourselves in the prophet's sandals. It's been months that he's been in this ravine. And it's been feeding him with daily food and water. And God told him to go there. And then out of nowhere, the brook dries up. Right? The birds stop bringing food and he starts to wonder, what have I done wrong? Where have I messed up? Right? And in my mind, I'm starting to think, okay, God, where are you? What's the purpose in all of this? You gave me water. Now it's dried up. Did I do something Wrong. You're telling me to leave. Did I miss something the first time? Am I hearing you right, God? Am I understanding you? The brook has dried up. What The source of what used to feed me is gone. And he's going to learn, friends, and we all need to learn this, that sometimes our God, the God who can provide the water, can also take the water away. Because God often might use the brook to dry up to give us the courage that we need to leave the place we were at so that we might go where we're supposed to be. And you might be going, okay, my brook is dried up. I used to be able to trust my job. I'm not sure I can trust my job anymore. I used to uh, have this nest egg. I had a 401k, right? Now it's a 201k. I used to be able to trust All of these things. I have these friends and it seems like, boom, they turned on me. And my friendships, like that brook, dried up. I used to believe I had a good marriage that would last, I don't know, forever. At least a long time. But my gosh, seems like the brook of my marriage is drying up. I used to be really close to God and I feel like that's drying up. A lot of times people will say things like this. They'll say, God provides... I'm sorry... God guides by what he provides. You might have heard that phrase before, right? Uh, Preachers in in church talk, they'll they'll use that same phrase and they'll go, where there's vision, God will provide provision, right? And I, I do believe, I do believe that God will often guide by what he provides. I'm, I absolutely believe that. But I also believe with all my heart that God also guides by what he does not provide. God, the same God who can give the water may cause the brook to dry up, to give us the courage to take the step that we need into total obedience. The brook dries up. It gives Elijah the courage to obedient, even when it doesn't make sense. God says, go to Zarephath. God, I don't understand what you're saying, Elijah says. And, and God causes him to go into a new place. The story is very rich. Again, I'm not going to read all these Bible stories. I'm going to hit the big ones. Uh, but this is also right after in Kings 17. Uh, I'll just, uh, I'm going to paraphrase this one. He moves, he travels up here to this place. 
It's maybe a hundred miles or so. During a drought, barren land. And he's walking along and he sees this widow. And God says to the widow, I'm sorry, God says to Elijah, this woman will provide for you. So Elijah humbles himself and says, Madam, I'm really thirsty. Could you please give me some water to drink? Maybe a little snack, right? Because I'm hungry. And the widow looks at him and says, Are you the only guy around who doesn't know that we've been in a drought? Holmes, we're dying. There's a drought on. I'm a widow. I'm a widow with one son, and he's back at our hut. I've come out here just to get a few sticks to build a fire that I might make our last meal. I've only got a little bit of flour left. I've only got a little bit of oil in the jug. That's all I've got left. Just enough for one meal. And we're going to eat that meal, she says to him, she and her son. We're going to eat that last meal and, and we're going to die. And because of what God is doing in Elijah's life, he has this confidence, this faith to say, no, you're not. And Elijah looks at this impossible situation and speaks faith to it. And he says, the flour that you have will not run out and the jar of oil will not run dry. So please, go back and bake me some biscuits. And she does. And they ate the biscuits. And the flour did not run out. And the oil did not run dry. And by the way, that's where the beginning of the doxology comes from. Praise God from whom all biscuits flow. And they ate for weeks and months. That's not funny. I thought that was funny, sorry. God, again, supernaturally provided for Elijah through the unconditional obedience of God. God then uh, supernaturally does this thing. Elijah is put to the test and God is put to the test and God's faithfulness shines through. Then one day, the story of this widow and her son continues. Tragedy strikes and the son dies mysteriously. Mom freaks out, as you'd expect. And she says, is this God's judgment on me because I turned against the one true God to these false gods? And then she turns to Elijah. And she says, Elijah, why would you even allow this to happen? And Elijah, because all that God had been doing in him through these seasons of preparation, because God was shaping him, he does something through Elijah That had never happened before yet in history. No record of anything like this happening before in the Bible. He, Elijah, takes the dead boy, carries him up to the upper room, puts his body on top of him, looks up to heaven and says, God, I think you could heal this guy. God, I'm asking you to do it. And God raises the dead boy to life. Why? Because God had taken him to his Kareth Ravine where he was cut down. God took him to a season of total dependence where he could not depend on anything else but God and God alone. 
Then God dried up the brook so that he would leave where he'd go and to go where God ultimately needed him to go. So once again, he could perform a miracle and raise the dead back to life. God used the horrible things and these stories to shape him into a true person of God. Next week, as uh, God gives him the faith and courage, that we'll see God will give him the faith and courage so that he can be one man and stand down 450 false prophets and ask God to send fire from heaven to prove God's goodness. Now, let me tell you guys, of all of the stories that we're going to talk about between Elijah and Elisha through probably six, maybe seven sections, next week is the week you don't want to miss. Next week is the best. I think it's the best story of them all. Right? This showdown between these prophets of Baal and Asherah and the one prophet of Elijah on a mountaintop. You're going to find this story just is going to knock your socks off. If you haven't heard it before, don't read ahead. Be surprised. It's a lot more fun that way. Why? Why will, why will Elijah have the power, the faith to do these things? Because he'd been through his Kareth Ravine. And you might be in a deep season of pain and God might be saying to you, I'm doing something in you because one day I'm going to do something through you. Verse one, we mentioned that we really don't know much, only that Elijah was described as being a person from Tishbe. He's simply just known from where he's from. 23 verses later, he's not known from where he's from, but from whom he's from. Look at how the story changes. Verse 24, the end of the story. The woman of God, he just raised her son. She says to Elijah, wow, now I know you are a, what? A man of God. And the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. God may allow you to go through a Kareth ravine so one day someone could look at you and say, now I know, I see it. Wow, you're a woman of God. Now I see it. You're a child of God. And I tell you right now, we all, I do, praise God for the pain and the shaping experiences, the hurt and the brokenness and the supernatural provision and all of the unconditional obedience, the making of a man or a woman for God. They often have to go through a Kareth Ravine so that God can do in them what he wants to do, uh, what he wants to do before he can do something through them. Any questions? Killer. I think it's so interesting whenever we find ourselves in those places where it seems like God has compelled us to lean into God's provision, to trust God. I think so often we, as at least as Christian believers, sometimes we get so hung up on this idea that once, once we become Christians, that our lives will be lives of abundance, that there'll always be more than we could ever need that's simply not the case. While we do have life in abundance, the abundance of things, food, material possessions, those things are they're never promised to us. In fact, 
Often, those things can be removed from our lives for a purpose so that God can teach us something very, very important. That we have to, at some point in our faith journey, decide that we're going to depend wholly on God. And that means being comfortable with knowing that God's never going to forsake us and will always provide us with just what we need. Maybe not what we want, maybe not more than we could handle, but definitely just what we need, our daily bread. Something to think about. Until next week, uh, friend, I hope that you're blessed, and I'll see you then.